Place it comfortably. So the title of today's talk is Nothing Special, Everything Special. Um, as you know, Nothing Special is the name of uh, one of Joko's book, my teacher's book. And I recall once uh, a Dyson I had with her in San Diego and somehow the theme of nothing special came up or I made some statement about nothing special and uh, or about, about not being special and she smiled at me and she said you're special mm-hmm. and uh, I knew my teacher well enough to know not to get a swollen head over <laughs> and she meant everyone is special right mm-hmm. everything is special <clears throat> so her book has a, a very good meaning to it nothing special but we need to understand what that is because it's not referring to nothing has any particular worth at all. Uh, it means <clears throat> that there is an ordinary, there's an ordinary kind of specialness to everything because everything is special. Mm-hmm. If everything is special, then there's no one particular thing which is special. Mm-hmm. It's all part of the whole. It's all interconnected and interpenetrated. Mm-hmm. So it's saying nothing special is that no particular thing is special because everything is special. Everything is worthwhile. Everyone is worthwhile. Mm-hmm. That's the point of it. Um, to illustrate the point a little bit more, remember the, um, the 1960s, 70s American spiritual teacher Ram Das who was a Vedanta um, uh, uh, practitioner, I think, med- meditation teacher, and also a, um, uh, a Harvard psychologist. And he had a brother, he wrote that he had a brother who was <coughs> suffered from schizophrenia through his life. And people who are schizophrenic can, can have um, psychotic delusions of grandeur, where they think they're very, very special. And Ram Dass's brother thought he was very special, he thought he was God. And Ramda said, where his problem lie, not that he thought that he was God, but he didn't see that everyone else was God as well. And if he saw that everyone was God, well that would be the shift between psychosis and enlightenment, right? right? But when you think you're God and no one else is, well that's, that's a bit of a problem, isn't it? And isn't it interesting, do you know, in, in um, in serious mental illnesses like that, <clears throat> that the person overreaches to some sense of being of grandiosity, you know, being special in some way, which we sense is some way of making up for some sense of lack of self-worth. And so something flips in the brain to go to the opposite to try and compensate for it. That's one of our understandings we have for it. Um, but whether we flip into psychosis or not, when, when we think we're special in some way and no one else is, we're, we're, we're flipping into that overcompensation somehow and the desire to be admired. But in terms of following this theme of nothing special, everything special, um, one of the things which is really talked about a lot in, in psychotherapy and is seen as being particularly important in the, uh, the upbringing of children 
And so, and I'd like you to just reflect when we talk about this too, on your own experience as being a child, not so much being a parent, but being a child, and whether you can remember any moments as a child where you just noticed that you're in the loving gaze of an adult or a parent, and you weren't in that, and it was just like a quiet, loving gaze, you weren't necessarily being admired or praised for something you did well, you just noticed your parent just loving you for being who you were. Mm -hmm. And maybe you can experience that, or maybe it's hard to conjure up an experience of that because what, you know, people, children also experience is um, being ignored, um, being shamed, um, or what can commonly happen is what we refer to as benign neglect. Like kids looked after their fed and clothed and so on, but not really, not really ever being the focus of a, of a loving gaze. And that loving gaze of, of being seen, you know, that loving gaze of being seen, we're talking about coming to our senses again, sight, being seen, um, by another person who's important in your life is an incredible gift. And, and children remember those. People who've had those experiences seem to remember them and they carry through to childhood and they're a, they're a gift that gives them, you know, some sense of self-worth in life. And uh, it's a mystery. Um, there's a, it's something mysterious happens when a child receives the loving gaze of a mother or a father. And it goes into the eyes, into the brain, into the visual cortex, somehow into consciousness and in memory. And it actually, we, we can, they're researching that they can actually show it actually impacts on the way the brain develops. It's magical, really. It's mysterious and magical. We don't fully understand how it works, but somehow that, that energetic gaze of love um, can actually transform another human being's brain and their experience of themselves. It's extraordinary. Um, it's also, it's not only true that in our human realm, do you know, we all being of the species human beings, that we it's in, that we're in each other's gaze, you know, and we're seen by we're seen by each other's, and we see others. But it also happens with our connection with the world at large and the animal realm. And a good example is the horses this morning, right? When we went on our walk, they wanted to look at us, right? And we wanted to stop and look at them, and we gazed at each other in that kind of intimate moment out there in nature for quite a long time, and they did as well. They want to see us, they, and we, we want to be intimate with them. Dinah wants to touch them on our behalf, right? The, the horse coming up and, and feeling safe with us, do you know, and feeling nurtured in some way. What was lovely just before that is that the mother came over, because that was her fault, the mother came over, like, you know, and looked, and then she, little quiet. And did you notice that she went back I know. to nuzzle the little one? And I sort of thought she would say, Is Simo? <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, I'll just check. Yeah. And it was that. But 
Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> and, then, and of course the head went down and she started in Australia. That was. Well, I noticed that too. And, and that was another intimacy. Do you know the, the horse turning away from us, going to the other horse? And they had their own little intimate tete-a-tete there for a while, do you know, and then they came back again. But um, so I think it was a very touching moment for us and probably was for the horses as well. And if you extend that even further, do you know, when we're walking through the forest, you know, everywhere we, we're going, we're being watched. Mm-hmm. Right? All the animals are watching us, right? and we're, we're watching them. The birds are watching us. Everything is interpenetrating everything else with its gaze, this magical thing called sight that we experience. Isn't it a magical thing when you think about it, sight? You know, imagine if we were blinded and we didn't have it anymore. And we have the gift we have, do you know, most of us have for for, um, most of our life, you know, and it's this magical gift of consciousness and light, right, where we can actually see what's around us in our world. It's extraordinary. So, um, keeping on our theme of the, 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 um, the, the gift of seeing, um, sight, experience of sight, Again, to emphasise a point, that's why I think it's important to sit with our eyes open, just so that it keeps us awake. But um, when we're sitting here, um, if we're just sitting in Chikantaza or following the breath, with our eyes open, it's like all of our senses are open. Not just our ears are open, our eyes are open. Everything is open and, and willing to receive and experience and exchange what's actually occurring out there. <clears throat> so, whether it's just on an informal level, or sometimes like as a, as a therapist, uh, or as a counsellor, or a healer, um, presence is healing. Uh, there is, to be actually present to another person, actually in itself, to be fully present to another person is a, a healing experience. Now, where people can go off the rails is that um, not only in my profession but other, other helping professions, people can experience what is called compassion fatigue, you know, people get burnt out. And what's occurring in that experience, I think, is that people are locked into the experience of giving to others Right, but that are not allowing themselves to receive, you know, and maybe they think no one's giving back to me. But sometimes you find that they're not actually open to receiving. And really, if we think that life is all connected and everything's interpenetrated, then really, what we're waking up to is is to see and to be seen, to give and receive at the same time. We're just giving, then we're we're locked. We're still locked in some little bubble of separateness. And if all we ever did was receive, we'd be locked into a little bubble of separateness. So, the true experience of interconnectedness 
is that we're always giving and we're always receiving and we're all always open to that interchange all the time. And if we experience life in that way, then it's less likely that something like compassion fatigue would occur because we get replenished as well as giving out. With coming back to the theme of the self and this sense that we have a permanent self inside of us that stays there all the time. Well, our sense of self is actually when you reflect on it, it's rather obvious really when you reflect on it, but our, our sense of self comes from our memory. And we have a memory of when we were four and where we lived and we remember when we were ten and the school we went to and in our adolescence and the friends we had and then you know, who we met as adults and where we lived and so on. So there is, there is a memory of progress of what actually occurs and as that, as we, that memory keeps kind of looping through our consciousness, it gives us this sense that there's someone permanent who was there. In fact, there's not really. And one way of thinking of like that is like if you think of a business, like a commercial enterprise, and, uh, you know, it's got a name, like I used to work for Relationships Australia years ago, counselling organisation, and there's a, now, now an entirely different set of employees and managers and people running the business than what there was 20 years ago when I was in, they're now in a different building, but it's still Relationships Australia. Mm -hmm. But everything has changed, you know. You know, all the employees have changed, everything's changed, the building's changed. But it's still Relationships Australia and it carries, still carries on that business. And our bodies are like that. We've got all these cells, which are kind of like employees, and they've all got jobs to do with job descriptions. And they all come and go, you know. But they're not the same employees that were there <coughs> ten years ago. They've all changed, they've all moved on. You know? And new employees have come in. And that's what we're like. You know? That's, that's, that's the nature of our, our being in space and time. But nevertheless, to come back to this issue of loving gaze and so on, nevertheless, as a human being, we have a memory and we all have, also have emotional memories. You know? And the fact is that the memories that we accumulated from particularly early in our life, as children and so on, um, impact on us as adults. And they do impact on us um, in terms of our sense of self-worth and whether we're worthy of love and whether we're worthy of receiving love and giving love. Right? So it has an impact. And. Um, In that, in that impact, it will have an effect on how we actually relate in our world. Um, now, people can grow up with a sense of, um, by accident really, um, people just have born into favourable circumstances where they had very loving parents who had a lot to give and they grow up with a stronger sense of self-worth. Other people don't have that so much, they just haven't been fortunate. It's not their fault. It's just the way the cards were dealt, you know, or we're somewhere in between there. 
somewhere. Um, but one of the points of practice is that despite that maybe being the cards we were dealt, right, at any moment we have the opportunity of waking up to seeing that everything is special. Mm -hmm. It's that potential is always there. It's not just something that was determined by lacking in the karma of our lives. One of the essential points of practice is that there's the opportunity of recognising that everything is interconnected and everything is special right now. Mm -hmm. don't, don't be bamboozled by all the psychology, do you know, as though it's deterministic in some way. It can shift, and it does shift for people. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it shifts gradually and sometimes it shifts suddenly, but it shifts. But one of the ways um, and one of the modern ways um, that people try to make up, you know, for self-worth, you know, being something special, um, is, is to go to an extreme of trying to be special in the sense of I'm special and I'm more special than everyone else, you know, and so the focus is more on the I. And there's a term that I heard on the radio the other day when I was listening to Talkback Radio, which I hadn't heard before, and it's a term which is called um, virtue signalling. And what virtue signalling is, 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 is bringing attention to yourself about how good you are. Mm -hmm. And businesses do it, like you'll find there's a, people have business plans where they advertise that they give a certain percentage of their profits to a charity or whatever. They may have a whole lot of different motives for doing that. But it's kind of like, we're, we're really good, you know, we, we'll charge you exorbitant prices, but we're actually, we're, we're good because we're giving it away somewhere else. That can be part of the, the strategy, right, to look good. Mm -hmm. And, and also there's a phenomena where people do charitable work, like they're doing something selfless to raise money, and they all go around wearing T-shirts that say in big letters, I make a difference. <laughs> huh? Now, it's funny really, because you reflect on it. You, you think of someone, um, of people that we consider in history, like um, figures who were considered to be um, people who really uh, demonstrated um, selflessness in their lifestyle. Take St Francis of Assisi. Could you imagine St Francis of Assisi <laughs> walking around with a T-shirt that said, I make a difference? <laughs> really? He'd be embarrassed. Right? Can you imagine um, Father Damien of Molokai, who worked with the lepers, walking around with a T-shirt and said, I make a difference? Or the Buddha. Right? kind of funny, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to that, that's kind of a false way of, it's not a very skillful way to develop self-worth by drawing attention to one's goodness in that way. And there is a, a saying in, um, in Zen Buddhism um, which is to be, to be like a white bird in the snow. And what that that saying is referring to is being conspicuous and being conspicuous in your giving. Mm -hmm. You don't need to telegraph to people you know, how wonderful you are and how good you are. You just give inconspicuously and it's doing it 
without reward. And if one can give in that way, there is a deeper sense of self-worth that comes from that rather than being admired for being so good. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, um, that principle is actually used in a form of uh, couple therapy, which was developed by a Japanese um, psychiatrist who was a Zen Buddhist practitioner. And what he encouraged couples to do who came to, saw him, who came to see him for counselling, he would encourage each of them to do one or maybe two, maybe three, kind things for their partner, maybe each day, or they work out how, how often it would be, but they were to do kind things for their partner and they weren't to tell their partner that they were doing it, they weren't to telegraph it to their partner that they were doing it, and they weren't to expect a reward for doing it. And with both people doing that, both people in a relationship doing that, could start to transform the toxicity of a relationship if it was there. That could be a kickstart to something. So that, that's an example of how it could be actually transformed into, in a practical way. So, when everything is special, then everything is connected with everything else and everything is reflected in everything else. What happens when we go into the self-centred dream is it's not, I don't think for most people it's actually admiring themselves, not the people who come here anyway. I don't think that's what people are doing when we go into self-rumination. I think for most people what it, it is, <coughs> it's, for some people it might be self-loathing, sometimes that might come up. But I think most of the time it's longing for something, you know. And I think that, and longing's okay, but it's, if it's a self if it's a self-centred, ruminating longing, I think what it's at the background of it is that the, if we really listen to the, the whisperings of our heart, is that we want connectedness. We're, we're longing for connectedness. We're, we're longing to be in that, that embrace, that intimate embrace of giving and receiving with life. You know, with particular people individually, but with life also. That's what we're, we're, re, we're re-seeking that connectedness. That is the whispering of the heart, right? It's not the loud, uh, it's not the loud blathering of the heart. It's the whispering of the heart that we need to listen to. And that is at its core. And, um, but the unfortunate thing is, like Narcissus looking into the well at his own reflection, if we're caught up in that self-absorption, it doesn't go anywhere. It's kind of like it's the consolation prize. Admiration is the consolation prize, or it's, in Buddhist terms, it's the near enemy to love. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but when we get out of that little loop of longing for something, you know, wishing for something, and just directly connect with the world, you know, be, be willing to look at the other and to receive the other, to look at the world and receive the other, we immediately come back 
into true connectedness each time. Mm-hmm. Now, to use another example and another story from, from Zen practice to draw this out, um, and you've heard me maybe talk about this before, but with the first koan in our koan series, uh, Joshu's Dog, a monk asks Joshu, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? And you can look at it just, just as a koan, um, but as a relationship counsel, I can't help looking at it within a relationship context, you know, and the monk and the teacher's relationship, etc. The monk asks, does a dog have Buddha nature? In the commentaries it says, he sees this mangy, low-life dog. Dogs are very, very low status in Asian culture. They're not like our pets. This mangy dog, you know, roaming around the, 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 the temple. He says, does that, that dog have Buddha nature? But what he's really saying is projecting himself into, do I really have Buddha nature? Am I really worthy? Uh, my teacher is. But me, I don't know whether I have this, this worthiness they call Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. And yes, Joshua at some other time said yes. He kind of affirmed monk, said yes you do. So that must have been validating for the monk. You know, I've got self-worth, I've got Buddha nature. But to this monk, he said no. Mm-hmm. Right? Which must seem like a cruel thing. You know, I'm not going to validate that. Right? But by saying no, he actually gets the monk to penetrate deeper into the issue, right? So it's, instead of just being a, a superficial, yes, you're okay, go deeper into the mm-hmm. issue to really see your deeper connectedness with life. And if you look into that, if you take up this then practice, whether it's Mu or Shikantasa or whatever, um, at some point when you examine yourself and you see that it's just a memory going around that you've clung to, you know, and, and attached to, and it just sort of pops and explodes, then you'll see the interconnectedness, right? Then, then you'll see that, yes, I am worthwhile because everything's worthwhile. All beings have Buddha nature. Mm-hmm. And one of the beautiful metaphors in Buddhism which is used to describe this interconnection is Indra's net. Right? Indra's net is this vast net that fills the universe or the sky. And at each point where the net crosses over the knot, there is a multifaceted jewel. And each jewel on each facet is a mirror. Each, each facet on the mirror reflects and penetrates every other jewel in the net. Right? It's a beautiful metaphor. That is, that is the nature of interconnectedness in a metaphorical sense. It, the worthwhileness of everything is reflecting back the worthwhileness of everything. And that is, that is, the, true, that is, that is the true self that's uncovered through Zen practice. So, um, there's nothing special and everything is special. Everyone is special. Thank you.